Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, China History Podcast listeners. Lazo Montgomery here once again with another special CHP episode. Hey, who doesn't like that Qing dynasty? Other than the whole Manchu thing and everything that happened between Daoguang and Puyi, lots of good things came out of this era in Chinese history. In the realm of Chinese culture, including art and literature and all its forms, the Qing was another in a long line of golden times in Chinese history. And with that in mind, I'm happy to invite a guest on to this long-running family program who is going to introduce something that was quite a big deal in the world of Qing Dynasty art and culture. And it's a topic that everyone has, well, at least heard about, but I'm guessing knows very little. The history of snuff bottles in Qing-era China. Welcome to the China History Podcast, Mr. Andrew Singer. Thank you, Laszlo. I am very happy to be here speaking with you today on your always informative and entertaining podcast. Well, before we dive right in, could you be so kind as to give me the skinny on your background and how you ended up writing and speaking so much about China? And when did the fascination with snuff bottles begin? I'd be happy to. Uh, the, the fascination with China started when I was very young. I was growing up on Cape Cod, and I always was interested in the Great Wall uh, and in China in general. This was in the 70s, early 80s. And uh, when I went to high school, I knew that I wanted to go to college to uh, study Chinese and to have the chance to go to China, which uh, wasn't very, uh, not a lot of options in in the mid-1980s. So, uh, but I did. I found a great program and a great teacher at Vassar College in New York State. And in 1986, I found myself in Beijing, late August, almost 36 years ago now. And... Uh, I knew nothing about snuff bottles at that time. Um, I was 20 years old, one week into China. I had met a guy, classes hadn't started yet, and so we jumped on a train to Huhehata, the capital of Inner Mongolia. And uh, it was you know, mid-80s. It was very remote up there at that point in time. There were, there were very, very few foreigners. And this guy and I were walking around looking for the uh, minority handicrafts factory. We finally found it. It was a journey in itself to get there. But when we got there, we found it was this little tiny store with almost no inventory. But on one of the shelves, they had a bottle. And it was a a dark brown, small, two inches metal bottle. It was plain on the sides. It had these animal masks going up the side. It had a little stopper on top with a spoon connected to it. No idea what it was, uh, but I, I liked the feel of it. 
I like the look of it. Uh, I can't remember, but I'm sure I like the price of it because it couldn't have been too expensive. And I bought my first snuff bottle one week into China. I have to admit, I've known about snuff bottles going back to my 20s. And I always knew what they were, snuff bottles, but I never tried snuff before, and I wasn't sure exactly what it was other than that you inhaled it like cocaine. So these snuff bottles that fit so nicely in the palm of your hand were always familiar to me as a Chinatown or Chinese airport gift shop staple. But beyond that, I I didn't know much. And I'm guessing a fair portion of my listenership is in the same leaky boat that I'm in. So here's my chance to set everything straight. So let's start at the beginning. What is snuff? Where did it originally come from? Where was it used? And how did it get to China? Uh, Snuff is a form of finely ground tobacco that is mixed with herbs and spices like uh, rose leaves or musk. And uh, tobacco uh, is a product from the Americas. And uh, when tobacco was first, let's say, quote unquote, discovered by the Europeans, uh, was right back at um, the first person who is uh, reported to have found tobacco and brought it back to Europe was a member of Columbus's crew. In 1492, it was a guy by the name of Rodrigo de Jerez. And uh, Rodrigo found dried tobacco leaves in Cuba, and he brought them back to Spain. Unfortunately for poor Rodrigo, he did in Spain what the Cubans apparently were doing on their island. He took the dried tobacco, he wrapped it in paper, he lit up. As he was puffing away, smoke was coming out of his nose and mouth. And it so freaked out everybody that he wound up being arrested and imprisoned by the Inquisition. So the first experience with tobacco in the, new, in the old world from the new world was, wasn't all that good. But very, you know, within historical times, within a century or so, tobacco was making its way to an older world. It made its way to Asia. And uh, tobacco and then snuff um, found its way to uh, China through Macau um, and possibly Japan um, uh, on European ships. You know, once the maritime trade from Europe had started in the 16th century, um, it was coming over. But even then, tobacco was not, uh, it had its issues in Asia as well. So in in 1638, this is the end of the Ming Dynasty, um, there was a Chinese imperial court decree that said, those who hawk and sell tobacco to foreigners would be decapitated their heads exposed on pikes. So the Ming Dynasty, at the end of the Ming Dynasty, they weren't all that friendly towards um, tobacco. But as you noted in the, in the lead in the introduction, it was really the Qing Dynasty where snuff took off in China um, as a, a product. There was eventually snuff grown in, I mean, tobacco that was turned into snuff was grown in China. Uh, They had it in Sichuan, Guangdong, and Jiangsu province. Then a higher quality came from Europe. They grew it in Spain, France, and Scotland. But the best of the best was Amastrina from Brazil. And the Portuguese brought that from Brazil over to Lisbon, from Lisbon, uh, you know, Mm. through Goa and Malacca and Macau, and they brought it into China. And one story is, is that in 1719, I think it was, um, the Macau Senate, sent 48 bottles of Amastrina snuff to the Kangxi Emperor. And these, were, these would have been 
larger bottles, not like a snuff bottle, which is two inches. This would have been a jar. And it was very, very expensive. Uh, but it was seen as uh, a product, as a gift, as something very luxurious. How do you, how do you use snuff? What are the paraphernalia, the, the rituals and ways it was used and stored? I've, I've seen some of these old antique retail tins of snuff, and those were, you know, just exquisite. But how did that all work with the packaging and usage? China uh, was, is a humid climate. So the boxes, the tins that you mentioned and snuff boxes that were used in Europe uh, you really weren't uh, conducive to the uh, Chinese uh, climate. So uh, snuff was stored, the, the, the original snuff when it was in larger supply was stored in glass jars. You'd have a cork on top uh, to keep it fresh. Mm-hmm. And then there was, as you said, a whole bunch of paraphernalia. There were um, funnels and scoops and spatulas. And so you would take the large jar and you would use a scoop and you'd get some of the snuff out of that for the large jar. Then you would use a spatula and put it into the top of a funnel. These are ivory funnels, ivory spatulas. They'd put the funnel into the top of a a little snuff bottle. Again, usually about two, two and a half, three inches tall. And they would use the spatula in the funnel, and they would load and refill the snuff bottles from the larger jars. Originally, when snuff was an imperial court tradition, uh, I'm sure that those jars of snuff were kept by the eunuchs and the attendants, and they were done uh, in the palaces. Later, when snuff became more widespread used in society, dealers who were selling snuff bottles usually had jars of snuff you know, on their desks, in their shops. And the snuff was worth, at that time, much more than the bottles were worth. Today, the bottles, some of these bottles are worth a lot of money. We'll talk about it, I'm sure. But then it was the snuff that was really expensive. And they would use that and get them into the bottles. Each bottle, there's a stopper, and the stopper has a little piece of cork under it to seal the mouth of the bottle with a spoon. Might have been an ivory spoon, might have been a metal spoon, like in my first bottle. And users of snuff would use the little spoon to get their pinch of snuff out of the bottle. Uh, Some people use snuff dishes, little dishes that were either of the same material or matching. And they might put the snuff on a dish. If I was going to be, if I'm having tea with you and we're having a gathering, I might put my fine little snuff on my dish and share it with you. And you would take a pinch and you would um, sniff it. Snuff, the word snuff comes from the Dutch. And it's from uh, snufftabak. Snuff is short for snuffin, which means to inhale strongly into the nose. Tabak is tobacco. So snuff tabak is uh, inhaled tobacco. And so that is where we get our word for snuff. And that was exactly how it was used by the Chinese as it became more popular in the country. All right. So this began during the Qing. Which emperors took part in the, in the snuff culture? You mentioned Kangxi. And can you speak to the nobles, aristocrats, you know, all the swells who partook in this uh, culture. I mean, this didn't seem like something that was enjoyed by the working class. I'm assuming it was out of reach price-wise to the average farmer or worker. Absolutely. Um, In the beginning, snuff was, you know, while tobacco had been, as we said, a little before the Qing Dynasty was in China, but it was really starting with the Kangxi, Yongzhen, Qianlong emperors. 
um, where snuff really became uh, part of the imperial court. And that's where it started. Uh, to start, it was at the emperor level, the imperial level, uh, and that was m- through all of Kangxi and Yongzhen in the first part of the Qianlong uh, Empire in the 18th century. By the late 18th century, uh, the literati and some of the other you know, elites in society were starting to use it. Um, eventually, in the 19th century, uh, it spread you know, more widespread throughout society. And what I like to think about is, okay, this is how it was used, when it was used. Question to me is, why was it used? And when snuff first made its way into China, it, it, it was seen initially as medicinal. It was a prophylactic that could dispel colds. It could improve your digestion, remove eye pain. It could resolve constipation and asthma. It was, it was just a really good cure-all um, for that which ailed you. And so the medicinal aspects of snuff were, I think, what originally was attractive. Now, it also had a couple other uses, uh, or functions, not uses. One of the other functions was that it could mask offensive smells. You know, it could uh, protect you against dust in the northern climate. Snuff taking was traditionally, initially, a northern um, uh, custom. It didn't spread to the south of China until much later. And in general, snuff was said to add to your overall feeling of well-being. You know, you took it, you were sneezing, you were clearing out your body. It was just making you feel better. And so that's why they were taking it. And again, not surprising that it started with the imperial court. And then also not surprising that as the emperors really liked it, it started seeping down into society. That's the snuff taking itself. You know, the bottles came with it, but, but a little bit subsequent to exactly, you know, when the snuff itself was starting to be used. Did the emperor have, uh, like, a minister of snuff, or was there somebody who, you know, took care of everything for the emperor, or did the Qianlong, for example, did he just keep a bottle in his, you know, dragon robes to uh, take a hit on every now and then? How did uh, how did that work at the imperial court? Uh, the answer to that question is both. Um, there, it is said that the Kangxi emperor used to carry a gourd shaped. A snuff bottle in a silk pouch within his robes. There is a portrait of the Daoguang Emperor actually taking snuff, where the, he's holding the bottle in one hand and the pinch of that snuff is on the spoon. Um, the Qianlong Emperor was clearly, as with so much of Qing history, you know, things really took off with the Qianlong Emperor. There are very few snuff bottles that you can find from the Kangxi and the Yongzheng reigns. There are some, but it was really with Qianlong uh, in the, the 1736 to 1795 where you really saw uh, an explosion in snuff bottles as an art form, as political capital, as a type of currency and gifting. That's when that really took off. If we could stray from uh, uh, Chinese history just a little, were there any other notable historical people who were uh, hardcore snuff users? Uh, There are two that I've come across. Um, In the second half of the 18th century, first part of the 19th century, Queen Charlotte, who was the wife of King George III, she was so enamored with snuff, she used it so much that her nickname was actually Snuffy Charlotte. And so she was quite well known, apparently, for for being a snuff connoisseur. 
Uh, but then we also had it on this side of the Atlantic. Um, Dolly Madison, who was President James Madison's wife, this was in the early 19th century, um, she was said to be a, a very uh, connoisseur of snuff. And at one White House gathering of her uh, lady friends, she served ice cream and plates of snuff. And those are two examples from either side of the Atlantic where snuff was part of the tradition. Well, well, Dolly Madison, she always knew how to throw a good party. You know, ice cream and snuff, you, you know, can't, can't get better than that. Yeah, I'm going to have to remember that at my next get-together. <laughs> so let's discuss the bottles. When did they go from being functional containers to these great works of art and how much snuff could they hold with, you know, was that like a day's worth that you'd like fill it up every day or, and, and, and also at first who manufactured them in Europe and later in China? In Europe, snuff was contained in boxes and there are some very beautiful examples of snuff boxes in, in museums um, that I've seen in China. Um, almost from the beginning you know, in the Qing dynasty, when snuff was being saved and starting to be used um, the boxes, as I mentioned, didn't work because they, they weren't humidity-proof. So the Chinese, and not everyone agrees with them with, with this, but, but many people feel that you know, the Chinese had a tradition at that time of medicine bottles, porcelain, um, sometimes metal medicine bottles, sometimes with a screw top, other times with a cork. And that's where they would put their you know, liquid and other medicines in it. So there, there's a feeling that, and it seems to make sense to me, that at least initially they were familiar. The Qing court was familiar with um, bottles as a container. So um, I think that in the imperial workshops, and Kangxi set up the imperial workshops, and that's when bottles started being produced, the bottles were first made in those imperial workshops, and uh, they were utilitarian, but they were also artistic. And they were slowly, though, it ramped up. You know, as I said, there were some simple bottles from the Kangxi and Yongzheng reigns. But once you get to Qianlong, that's when the bottles are still functional. They're functional all the way, you know, into the, into the, throughout the 19th century. However, they also just become much more artistic. So the types of materials just explode in the Qianlong reign. You have glass bottles that might be simple glass, overlay glass. You have crystal, which would be inside painted or carved. You had hard stones like jade and agate. Um, there were organic materials, you know, uh, lac briquette, coral. There were just so many different varieties of materials that were used. There were different shapes. There were square, round, oval. Uh, some were longer or shorter. Some were wider or thinner. So they just had a very a uh, wide range of what you could do. So the bottles were the bottles. But then, China being China, it was the decoration. It was, the, it was the, uh, how they adorned them that really gives them meaning. And, and as I know you know, in Chinese history, um, the tradition of the cosmos, in, in artistic and philosophy, the cosmos, nature, the uh, connection to all of that is very, very important. And so what happened with snuff bottles is that they became this representation of all these other things in Chinese history and art and culture. Um, there, is, there was a very famous snuff bottle collector um, and author, um, Bob Stevens, and he wrote that snuff bottles are the ultimate expression of realism in miniature. And 
realism in miniature is a Chinese tradition from imperial gardens to the layout of imperial palaces to the materials that are on a literati scholar's desk, you know, trying to condense down the world and the universe and the cosmos into this miniature is really important. And that is what these incredible artisans did with snuff bottles. They, whether they were painted or carved or molded and, all, all three of those and more were, were methods of decorating these bottles, almost always they had meaning. They had a deeper aspect to them, and, and they're known as rebuses. Um, and, and, and a rebus is a method of using pictures or words and symbols to signify something else, to convey a deeper meaning. And in China, and specifically on snuff bottles, the rebuses are, I mean, they're... they're there's so many of them, you know, and the, you know, typically these rebuses stand for uh, their blessings. They're for a happy marriage. They're wishing you many sons or longevity or wealth or promotion in imperial office, success on the civil ex- service examinations. You know, these rebuses all are meant to convey this meaning. And uh, one of them I'd like to share um, uh, deals with a magpie, Xi uh, Chue. The magpie is a bird of joy, of happiness. It's a bird of prophecy. And so if you see a snuff bottle and there are two magpies on the bottle, that is a symbol for shuangxi, double happiness. It's a a wedding, wedding wish. If you see a magpie with a chrysanthemum flower, that is a rebus, a homonym for zhu jia huan le. May the entire family be happy because it's combining the Zhuhua, which is a chrysanthemum, the, the homonyms for happiness and family together. And then so when you see that on a bottle, you know that's what that was wishing as a gift that was given to somebody. Um, if you see, I like this one, if you see a magpie on top of a plum tree, plum is May, May is also eyebrow. So the rebus, the homonym for a magpie on top of a plum tree is Xi Shang Mei Shuo. May, you, may your joy reach up to the top of your eyebrows. So it is a method of saying, you know, here I'm giving you something. I want you to be happy or I want you to wish you happy marriage. There are rebuses that uh, offer protection. Zhongkui, um, who is the demon queller. There is a bottle, a story where you have Zhongkui with his demon attendants on one side of the bottle. And on the other side of the bottle, you have his sister in a, being pushed by other demons in a cart. That's a rebus for jia mei. Jia mei means uh, marrying off one's sister. So the story is Zhong Kui marrying off his sister. But the, holo- the homonym for that is a saying to subjugate demons and ward off evil spirits. So if you were traveling, you would want this bottle because it would help you ward off the evil spirits and protect you while you're out traveling. So these rebuses just have a phenomenally rich uh, level of meaning and depth, which is, which is incredible when you start to actually study what a bottle is. I knew none of this. When I bought my first dozen bottles during my first trip to China, and ac- I was there for an academic year in 86 and 1987, I knew none of this. I, I just knew I liked the bottles. My education has really taken off since then. And, and, and when you look at it, the, the, what's there is just amazing. Snuff bottles is a work of art. This is all starting around Qianlong era. This is where it began. 
Yes, mostly during the Qianlong era is is where it started, and and you know that's good and bad, as as I'm sure you can gather. Um, you know, from an artistic form, they're beautiful. From they became at the imperial court um, a form of gift giving. I mean, they're small; they 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 can hold in your hand. You can tuck them into the folds of your gowns. You can hang them from a belt because they were in pouches. The Chinese traditional outfits didn't have pockets, so they would hang them from you know belts and sashes. Well, they became gifts. And the, there were imperial palaces where workshops where the bottles originally were produced. Eventually, that was spread to workshops outside of Beijing in Suzhou, Shanghai, Guangzhou, also the imperial shops in Jingdezhen for porcelain. Mm. There also were private workshops eventually that were making snuff bottles. There was a demand, a high demand for these bottles because they were given as gifts. They were used by people who wanted to use the snuff, but they were also, for all the reasons of those rebuses I mentioned, wanting to wish people wealth and longevity and high office, you wanted to give them out. Well, in 1751, the Qianlong Emperor was out on one of his northern hunting expeditions, which he liked to get out of the city and go to do. And while he was up there, he, and this is according to a uh, record in the First Imperial Archives of the Qing Dynasty in Beijing. It's been translated. And while he was on this hunting expedition, he exhausted his stock of flint stone sets and snuff bottles. And so he sent an edict back to Beijing ordering uh, 20 to 30 additional flints and 30 snuff bottles so he could give them away during his expedition. So they got 30 snuff bottles out of the storage that they had made in Beijing, shipped them on up, and the emperor was once again... um, you know, full of his supply. But in addition to being gifts and, and, you know, gift giving can beget favors, can beget bribery, can beget corruption. And so not surprisingly, at the the end of the Qianlong era, when things were starting to be, you know, there were a fair amount of rebellions and things were not going as well, the, the imperial tills were not quite as full as they used to be, there is a very uh, were infamous uh, man by the name of He Shen, he Shen is that I'm sure you've spoken about him before. Um, you know, this, this, I'm amazed at this 25-year-old palace gate guard. In five years, from 1775 to 1780, he goes from nothing to everything. You know, he's the you know, vice minister of revenue. He's a grand counselor. He is uh, the commander of the Manchu Plain Blue Banner. He's in charge of the Beijing Gendarme. I mean, this guy really got the Qianlong Emperor's ears. Um, and he was his confidant, and he was basically the gatekeeper to the Chinese government for the, from 780 or so uh, to the end of the Qianlong era. Well, Qianlong abdicated in 1795, but he was still, you know, really kind of running the show until 1799. Well, when Qianlong died in 1799, his son, the new Jiaqing emperor, wasted no time in arresting He Shan. He was like, you know, everyone knew what this guy was. Uh, Obviously, he was intelligent and savvy and cunning, and he survived for a long time. But he had also acquired, through bribery and corruption, um, uh, what was said to be the most amazing snuff bottle collection, among other art, in the world. And he might have been the richest man in the world at that time. So the Jiaqing Emperor gave him a choice. He said, you're going to be executed. We can do it by slicing, the traditional rather painful method, or if you will give up where you have buried your snuff bottles and loot, we will let you hang yourself with a silk cord, a much more um, 
uh, noble way of, of ending your life. And so Hushan, uh, again, being a smart man, uh, took the offer. I would do that, too. I'd take the uh, silk cord to slow slicing any any day. <laughs> I, I agree. It's definitely a wise choice when the writing is on the wall. And, and so, you know, he led uh, the officials to gardens outside Beijing, to various homes he had. And at the end of the day, they recovered more than 2,300 snuff bottles that Hushan had accepted as payments, as access to the emperor, as maybe just collecting him as art. He is said to have only liked hard stone and amber snuff bottles. You didn't find any glass, porcelain, or any other types of materials. Uh, But he had more than 800 white jade bottles. And and white jade was considered very luxurious. And uh, so there's more than 800 of those. He had 300 bishi stone bottles, more than 100 agate bottles. He just had bottles galore. And when you think about it, I'm sure the snuff bottles, as many as there were, were probably a very small portion of his whole hoard. Um, and so snuff bottles, uh, they, they just were an intricate part of the Qing dynasty from then on. They didn't, they didn't go away after Qianlong. The Jiaqing and Daoguang emperors and, and thereafter, there were still snuff bottles, but China's circumstances you know, were not as well off. Uh, you know, the luxury of the Qianlong era uh, didn't continue the same way. Uh, there is a statement that the Jiaqing Emperor, he sent an imperial edict about snuff bottles, writing, decoration is merely a foolish squandering of funds. He was much more frugal than his father was. And in particular, the type of snuff bottle that is most well-known and most refined in the Jiaqing era are molded porcelain snuff bottles. These are bottles that were made in Jingdezhen, and the design was actually molded into them. So you didn't have to carve them. You didn't have to paint them. They were decorated, but the main mold was, the main design was in the mold. It was much cheaper. It was much easier much to mass produce bottles like that. And I like to think that because the Jiaqing Emperor didn't like spending as much money, but he still needed to give gifts of snuff bottles, this was an easier way and a more economical way to produce them. I see some snuff bottles from collectors being sold at auction, you know, in hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. What kind of bottle would sell for, you know, say at auction for maybe 10000 What would you get for $100,000? And, you know, for people that are spending millions for a single snuff bottle, what provenance or qualities were contained that priced it so high? The main determinant, I think, of the most value for bottles today uh, is is provenance, as you said, and it's the 18th century. The there are Chenlong bottles that are established to that period. Uh, there are some that are worth incredible sums of money. There are others that are worth not as much. And as you get more recent vintage, you know, bottles uh, might not be worth much at all. Uh, there is one today. There is one type of snuff bottle. There is a very active industry for inside painted bottles. These are glass and crystal bottles where through a little, the little mouth at the top, these artists put in these special brushes and they actually paint these incredible scenes from people to animals to landscapes from the, in reverse, from the inside out. And there is a very active contemporary inside painted bottle industry which 
you have valuable bottles. But the most valuable from then all the way back is going to be the 18th century and then maybe the 19th century. There was an auction earlier this year at Christie's. It was the uh, Rochelle Holden collection. And there was one star of that auction. It was a rare for me rose enamel on gilt ground glass bottle. It was from the Imperial Palace workshops. It was incised with a Qianlong four-character seal mark on the base. The enamel, an enamel like glass production, was uh, brought to China first by the Jesuits. The decoration on this bottle, it's birds and flowers with just beautiful scrolling designs flowing up the sides and the neck. The workmanship is just intricate and sublime. So the, the provenance back to the Qianlong era and, and the extremely fine quality of this bottle led to a final sale price at the auction of a little more than $680,000, which is a staggering sum of money for a two-and-a-half-inch tall artwork. Um, but, it, but as Bob Stevens says, it captured realism in miniature. You know, it, it, it just the, the meaning of it and the, and the provenance of it was exquisite. There was another bottle at that auction, which I liked. I liked looking at it. It was a basket weave bottle, crystal. It was actually owned by Mr. Stevens in his collection at one point. And the estimate of that bottle, though, was only two to $3,000. So obviously we're talking, you know, factors different from the enamel bottle. Well, that bottle sold for just under $10,000. And it's well over, well over its um, uh, estimate. Um, the other bottle I mentioned that sold for six hundred eighty thousand, its estimate was four to six hundred thousand. So it was over its estimate, but um, you know a little bit closer uh, percentage-wise. Uh, so it's when you get those provenances and you can get something that is just so beautiful, and and how it's been painted or carved or maintained. You know, does it still is it still in perfect condition? Uh, you know, it's like a mint comic or a mint baseball card, something that you know. Through, the, through time has been saved and savored and honored and is still there, and is still there in great shape. And so some of these bottles, um, particularly those older ones, um, sell for extravagant amounts of money. And can they be traced back to a specific emperor? Like, is there, are there any bottles where it's like, wow, this one actually was used by, say, the Qianlong emperor at his court or just to the time period? I'm not familiar with anything that specific. You can, you can tie them to the reign. The Qing dynasty you know, kept immaculate records, extensive records of everything. And, and in these, um, this first historical archive that I cited before in other areas, they, they have really good records of what was done where, when, and why. Uh, and they might have been done for the Qianlong Emperor or the Yongzhen Emperor or Daoguang or whomever, but I'm not familiar with anywhere they can say, hey, you know what? that was Qianlong's bottle that he carried on him. I mean, if it was, you know, forget the auction estimates. If you could actually tie a bottle <laughs> that he actually held in his hand. That's got his palm print <laughs> on there, yeah. That would be something something unique. You know, I never used snuff. I never met anyone that used it. I mean, I, I know people that use smokeless tobacco, but is snuff and how it was used back in the 18th, 19th century is it still around today? Can you still get it at some high-end tobacconist or something like that? I assume so. I, I don't totally know, uh, but I would assume you probably can because, um, you know, it, it, you can usually get almost anything these days. You know, the snuff that you would, in a snuff bottle, 
you could get several days supply of snuff in there because you, know, you would use it several times a day probably if you were really using it. But a friend told me recently that one of those little tiny spoon pinches of snuff that would come out of the snuff bottle had 10 times the nicotine that is in a modern day cigarette. And you, know, you think about the health issues, um, uh, it would be you know, staggering. Now, I think one of the things that maybe mitigated in a bad way against the worser effects of snuff in the 19th century China is opium. And you had a much bigger problem uh, in addiction uh, than, than you would have had just necessarily with snuff. Um, but it, is, uh, it was still there. Wow, the potency of 10 ciggies. I'm getting a head rush just thinking about that. Well, and, and the sneezing and the rush and the cleansing of the body was one of those medicinal purposes that they, they looked to snuff for. I guess so. So tell me about this organization that you belong to, the International Snuff Bottle Society. Who are these guys? Where are they based? And tell me about this organization. The International Chinese Snuff Bottle Society, I have to say, is one of the most amazing organizations I've ever been involved with. Um, and it was formed back in the late 60s uh, by groups of snuff bottle collectors. Um, and there were gr large groups on the east and west coasts of America um, at that time and elsewhere through the world. But they formed this organization. They started producing a uh, – they were doing a quarterly journal at that point with articles in it. Um, for the last many years, there's been a the journal has been three times a year. They started having annual conventions. So they would get together um, in different parts of the world, uh, initially in America, but then they've also done many abroad. And they would get together for conferences. And what, I, what is so amazing about the organization is, is, for me, is the friendships and the camaraderie and the, um, uh, the knowledge, the scholarship that is not only in the journals, but also through people who I can email with questions. And, and I actually have, I have to thank you, Laszlo. You actually helped me learn something today about my very first snuff bottle. As I told you, I bought this bottle, and, and I didn't know much about it. And uh, maybe I should be embarrassed to say, until this morning, I didn't, still didn't know a lot about it. But when I was uh, reading an old journal article from 2012 this morning about snuff bottle dishes, it talked about my bottle. I didn't realize it, but then I did. It talked about, it was an article that was discussing mirrors in Chinese history and how mirrors are um, a sign of the sacred. They reflect reality. They can protect you against demons and bad spirits. And, and how, in, so for thousands of years, the Chinese have had mirrors. And very often they had dragons adorning the mirrors as a, as a further symbol of the magical and the mystical. This article I was reading, thanks to you prompting me to dig into my archives, talked about how mirrors were simulated on metal snuff bottles. And so if you have a bottle which has either round or smooth sides, which my first bottle does, and if you have dragons facing each other, crawling up the sides towards the neck, which my bottle does, it is a bottle that was designed to offer protection, to ward off demons, and to um, have a motif for miracles that the dragons bring. And so that's my bottle. And I now know that. I, I'm so, I was so excited to learn that this morning. Um, it was a great feeling. <laughs> that's great. So for anyone 
who might be interested to start collecting snuff bottles? Where where can they begin? It, you know, if someone doesn't have the financial wherewithal to participate in the next Christie's auction, where does one start? What I, if you wanted to get to look into snuff bottles as a as a collection as something more serious, um, I, the place I would send first is the Snuff Bottle Society's website, you know, snuffbottlesociety.org. There are there's information about snuff bottles there. There are there's a page that lists dealers. There's also a page that lists auctioneers and auction houses. The dealers page you can you want reputability. Um, you can buy bottles on eBay. You can buy bottles on Etsy. Um, I did in years past. I've bought a number of them on there. Many of them probably shouldn't be in my collection, but several way back when were. The thing you have to be really careful about on eBay or Etsy or something is whenever someone says antique, vintage, original, 18th century, handmade, uh, be very, very skeptical. 99 times out of 100, that's not, if not more, uh, that's not what you're getting. However, I'm a firm believer in collecting what you like. And if there's a bottle that you see that you like, you enjoy it, you, the way it looks, the way it feels, maybe you learn a little bit about the meaning, I say buy it. You know, if it, particularly if the price point is reasonable, because if you're collecting something, you want to enjoy it. I, I, I don't look at, invest, at collecting as an investment. I look at it as something that you enjoy doing that brings you pleasure. Um, that being said, you know, I'm very much into now trying to learn more about bottles and trying to study them. I'm writing about them. I'm talking about them. And so going to places like the Snuffball Society, they've got 50 years of articles in these journals that just, it's, it's amazing. There's explorations and analyses and research. It's just unbelievable what is there that you have access to. And it's all digitized. Members can not only get the books, but you can also um, see it online. And so that's one, that's where I would start. Um, you can also though, you know, Chinatowns, um, I found a snuff bottle in an antique store recently. Um, and it's, it's meant to look like it's really old. I know it's not, but it was beautiful. Um, it was a porcelain bottle in a gourd shape. Uh, and I bought it. It was reasonable. Uh, so there's all ways to get into, uh, the snuff bottle hobby. Well, I sure feel a lot smarter than I did when I woke up this morning so, Mr. Andrew Singer, I'm so happy to have met you and for your agreeing to come on the CHP. This was truly a pleasure and informative to boot. So I know the uh, next annual meeting of the International Chinese Snuff Bottle Society is October 25 to 29. Where's it going to be held and are you going and have you ever been to one? What are those things like? The convention is going to be in San Francisco this year. It is the fourth time since 1969 that it'll be held in San Francisco. Um, I am absolutely going. And, and it's my second. It will be my second convention. I went to Minneapolis in 2019, which was the last in-person convention before COVID. We've had to have them on, online virtually for the last couple of years. So we're all very excited about getting back there. And it'll be my second, like I said. And uh, I'm looking forward to meeting friends and to, you know, each convention they have, it's four days, and there are lectures, there are museum tours, there are exhibitions of 
private snuff bottle collections. Uh, there's a gala dinner in an auction. There's a dealer's room where you can look at all sorts of bottles. Uh, it's just a great time to get together with people who, who love the same thing you do. I have a lot of friends now in the society. Um, next year's convention is going to Lisbon. Oh, wow. So um, next year I'm going to uh, get my first trip to Portugal um, by attending the con- convention. So uh, they're just wonderful events. Um, I'm glad I can go to my second one now in person. Uh, there have been people who have been going to them for decades. Have they ever been held in China? Yes, they have. They've been held in China, in Beijing, Xi'an. They've been in Hong Kong. Um, two years ago, uh, we were supposed to be in Taiwan. Uh, but again, that was COVID uh, that that interrupted that. So yes, yeah. they have been in Asia. Um, one of the great things about the society, and we've been doing lots of Zoom meetings, obviously, over the last three years, is where all the collectors are spread out. Um, you know, there are many people in North America and, you know, Canada and the United States, but they are spread all over Europe, Asia, the Middle East. I mean, when I'm on when I'm on Zoom calls or even at the convention in Minneapolis, I met people from Hong Kong, from China, from, uh, from Beijing, from uh, Israel, Thailand, Scotland, Norway. I mean, there were, you know, and North America. Um, there were um, just people from all over the world. And there are some very knowledgeable people who, who are collectors who, who are very generous with their time on sharing it uh, you know, their knowledge with me. Like yourself. <laughs> What else are you up to in the uh, exciting world of Chinese culture? I know you do a lot of speaking and and writing. What do you have in the hopper? I write a uh, twice a month newsletter on Substack uh, called Andrew Singer Talks About China. It uh, looks into Chinese and Chinese-American topics around history, art, culture, current events. Uh, And that's something I'm uh, excited to be writing uh, regularly um, I just finished a journal article on uh, the scope of Chinese history, which is slated to be published uh, early next year. As you said, I've been uh, writing and uh, speaking on uh, just all sorts of topics that deal with Chinese culture and history, uh, you know, from maritime trade to various aspects of snuff bottles. And I'm looking forward to just continuing that. And that's what I'm doing with my writing and speaking. And the opportunities like today to, to come on to your wonderful podcast and to um, hopefully share a little bit about my love of snuff bottles with everybody. Well, let's just leave it at that. I'll have links to everything we discussed tucked away in the show notes accompanying this episodio especial. Andrew Singer, thanks once again for coming on. This was really uh, informative. Thank you so much, Laszlo. I appreciate it. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from blisteringly hot Los Angeles, California. Do think about coming back again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.